Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is November the 10th, 2014, and this is episode 1461 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Monday. Uh, it's a Monday after a long weekend, at least a long weekend for those of you that listen to the show of having the show not here. Uh, we had four days instead of two days without a show. That's because I was running a TSP fall event here uh, at the TSP Homestead, which went off really, really well. We had a great time. I think students learned a lot. Several students who had been to several of them said that this one was probably the best one they ever did. Uh, and they had the most fun and learned the most at this one. So I think we're getting better at doing them as we go. And uh, hopefully I'll get to see some of you guys that haven't been to one yet here this spring because they are a blast. Before I get to uh, all your feedback, because it is a Monday show, so this show is made up of stuff that you send me by email. You email me at jack at the survival podcast dot com. You put question for Jack, comment for Jack, subject for Jack, story for Jack in the subject line. And you give me your point or you make your point. You tell me what it's all about in one sentence. Then you give me details or links or things like that. That's the best way to get through the screening process. Before I do that, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one today is BulkAmmo.com. I'll tell you what, ammo has this uh, cycle that it runs, and whenever the gun grabbers get a little bit extra grabby, uh, not only does the price of uh, guns go up, but the price of ammunition and accessories goes up, and I would say it goes up faster, and uh, it, it goes up with, uh, with a greater long-term effect. And I'll tell you why that is. One, it's because if you don't have any ammo, your gun's an overpriced club. We all know that. So that's kind of self-evident. But the other reality is guns are really expensive, and most of us have them. They don't go bad, and you don't run out of guns. You also don't run out of magazines, idiot in Colorado. And Most of you know what I'm talking about there. Um, but when it comes to ammunition, it's an expendable, uh, and it's relatively low cost compared to the firearm itself. And uh, so it's the one thing that we really want to stock up on, both for training and for long-term needs. So it stands to reason it would get the immediate upward pressure when there's any fear over confiscation or things like that. So it makes sense to buy in the good times with ammunition. Buy when its price is low, maybe even sell a little when the uh, price is high. The best way to do that is to buy in bulk. Do that at BulkAmmo.com. Check them out today, BulkAmmo.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor, the sponsor that was here when there was no other sponsor, the sponsor that was knocking on the door before I took sponsors. That's uh, six years in January it'll be that they've been uh, supporting this show. That's a long time. They have everything you need for your prepping. Check them out today at safecastle.com. Remember, they do give away their discount membership to any member of my MSB for free. That is a $49 membership, a lifetime membership. They sell it every day for that $49. That makes your first year of being in my support brigade effectively a dollar from that one benefit alone. Bulk Ammo also gives discounts to members of the support brigade, and about 38 other companies do. So if you want to know how you can support this show, make sure that we're around for a long, long time. It's by being a member of the support brigade. It is the number one way that I pay the bills here at the TSP Rants to keep this show on the air and keep multiple giant servers running and all other types of things to run. Run this business uh, is through MSB. If you notice, I don't sell much of anything else, uh, so you can join that, and that's the product that I believe in the most of what I could do for you guys because it pays for itself. That's the type of relationship I like to have with a customer. I like them to buy something, and I like that membership. 
to be profitable. That's what I think you get with the MSB. Check it out today. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on members. And remember, even though it's already a profitable membership, it's even more profitable if you've served our nation at home or abroad as a military member, as a law enforcement member, as a member of the Peace Corps, or as a first responder like an EMT, paramedic, or firefighter. Any of those professions, active duty or prior service, email me with service discount in the subject line. Do that before, not after you join. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I'll send you a discount on an already great-priced product. Uh, now, let us shake, take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1461, because the episode is 1461. I have two very interesting segments for you guys today. One is called An Epidemic of Witches, and the other is, is Coins for the Ferryman. I'm going to read An Epidemic of Witches. Here we go. The city of Aris in Flanders is overrun with Vaudary this year. It's an absolute epidemic. Vaudary refers to Peter Valdo, a 12th century preacher who embraced a radical form of Christianity for the time. His name became associated with heresy, but 200 years later, Vaudary has come to mean sorcery and witchcraft. People are tortured and many are burned at the stake, but finally the Duke puts a halt to the killing and all the witches are pardoned, those that are left alive. There's a carnival atmosphere as people celebrate. Those who've been killed as witches were soon forgotten. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us at tspwiki.com. The actual facts of the matter didn't matter. There were no witches in Aris, yet the accusations increased as their economic condition worsened. Merchants avoided the town, fearing being accused of witchcraft, and that made the town's condition even worse. Now think about that one, folks. Accident, disease, crop failure, economic slumps may be, must be explained and blame assigned. 150 years ago, the peasantry thought the disasters were punishment by God, but after the Black Death, the Great Famine, and cattle disease, it became difficult to believe these disasters were anything but the work of some evil force, such as witches. Um... I think the witch hunt is alive and well today. I think that the witch hunt, uh, in its modern day and age, this is my take by Jack Spearco, uh, comes in the form mostly of legislation and laws. A kid dies of a uh, parasite from swimming in a lake. One in a billion chance that it could happen. And some woman who lost her child, and God, I fear for, feel for her so bad, wants to make a law that says every child that swims in any water anywhere has to wear a nose plug. Now, this is the type of thinking that we live in today, that we must, and that, at least they're finding the right blame. Uh, but, you know, somebody gets sick from a hamburger, and all of a sudden we want a hundred new food legislations uh, to prevent uh, disease from food. While most food that people eat is perfectly safe, and in general those re legislative things only affect the small producer who never gets anybody sick in the first place. Yeah, we have an epidemic of witches, of witch hunts, I should say, in modern society. And it does take place mostly in the halls of government. And it's every single thing that happens. Somebody must be blamed, and some sacrifice must be made. Sounds a lot like an ancient pagan religion, doesn't it? Uh, if somebody gets shot, we need to sacrifice our right to firearms. And we have to blame everybody that's associated with guns in any way instead of the person that actually shot somebody. Anytime there's a wreck in a vehicle, we have to say that it was some vehicle safety feature that didn't exist and whatever. Well, I have a newsflash for everybody that thinks like this. You know, the most dangerous thing you can do is live. Living gives you a 100%, 100% chance of death. 
Think about that. My take by Jack Spirico. Let us, from here, go on and get into your feedback today. I want to start out with something uh, from last week. We had a question. Uh, actually, no, wait. I've got to do Bob Wells' Plan of the Week this week, uh, a day early. Tomorrow is the Veterans Day show, and I've also got the Monday Prepper scenario. So I almost screwed that up again. Anyway, Bob Wells' Plan of the Week. Every week we get a plant from the Bob Wells Nursery that we can learn about uh, and maybe grow in our area. This one you can grow in most areas. It's Ginkgo Biloba. It's adaptable from Zone 4 to Zone 9. Ginkgo biloba, biloba, also known as the maidenhair tree, is a deciduous tree. These trees are extremely long-lived, with individual specimens surviving for 3,000 years. Ginkgo biloba trees have distinctive leaves that flutter in the slightest breeze. Once fall arrives, they turn golden or bright yellow before they carpet the ground. The extract from the leaves is used in ginkgo biloba supplements to improve memory, symptoms of dementia, and blood flow. Bob Wells Nursery specializes in anything edible, fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as a hard-to-find specialty trees. Find them at BobWellsNursery.com. Uh, ginkgo biloba is cool, man. It's a great tree. It's something we don't have growing here, and we probably should plant some. It also is a tree that comes male and female. I'm adding to Bob's description here. If you don't have both, you don't get nuts, and only the female produces the nuts. The nuts aren't the greatest thing in the world to eat, but you can eat them. But a lot of people only want one tree. Because the nuts, if left to themselves as they rot on the ground, kind of stick. So if you wanted a ginkgo tree and you wanted to assure yourself that you wouldn't have these nuts that you may not use lying around, you can plant one unless your neighbor happens to have the alternate sex and you have the female, you're not going to have the problem. You could also plant multiple trees, and as they mature, uh, you could select out either the male or female side if you wanted to prevent them from producing nuts. I'm not saying you do. I'm just saying some people might. They might want the tree for other purposes, for its medicinal and ornamental uses. Uh, with that, let's talk about this Monday's prepper scenario as well. I give you guys a likely scenario of something that could happen uh, to you, and you guys tell me what you would think you would do about it. Well, last Monday's, Uh, was the weather alert comes on, a tornado is on the ground and headed dead for your area. For this exercise, assume your home has no basement or shelter, even if you have a basement or shelter. Why? Go to the basement is the easy answer. In the real world, even if your home has a basement, you may be elsewhere when the situation arises. I had quite a few people say they would get in their car and start driving. That is the wrong answer. 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 Uh, that is the wrong answer. Um, you actually increase your likelihood of impact by doing that. And we're talking on the ground, the weather alert says it's coming right at you now. Okay? So you don't really know that that means it's at your house. You just know it means it's at your area. And there's actually the highest probability is that your house won't be hit. Uh, if you start driving around, the fact that you might find some way to interact with that tornado actually kind of goes up. And if you are in a vehicle when it's hit by a tornado, there is a very, very high chance of your death. It's not guaranteed. Some really weird things have happened. Vehicles have been picked up and set down with the person in them not even injured, though I think their shorts were probably smelling pretty bad by the time uh, the vehicle came to rest. But in general, if you're in a vehicle when it's hit by a tornado, your, your chances of death go up. We don't do things that increase our chance of death. Um, There is a whole litany of things that they tell you to do, but the reality is most of them don't apply to many people, which is, you know, get in the lowest uh, floor of the building. Okay, that usually applies. You either have a two-story or one-story, and you stay put if you're on a one-story. And it's you know, always get in the basement. Get in the basement. Get into a subterranean level. That is the best advice, but many homes simply don't have that option. So what you need is the strongest interior room of your home and whatever you can do to shelter and cover yourselves 
Uh, I've seen things done that make sense, like people getting into bathtubs and putting a, pulling a mattress over them and holding on to it. Uh, most tornadoes don't completely level modern housing. Some do. Some cut through like a buzzsaw. There is a point at which all you can do is the best you can do and find the best shelter that you can. Um, tornadoes vary widely from small F1s to earth-ending F5s. You know, they just, I saw one in, uh, in Alabama, the aftermath of it, almost six months after it went through in Birmingham, and it was about a three-quarter mile wide swath. And it, all I could think of was the, um, the TV show made for TV uh, movie from the 80s called The Day After. It's what it looked like. And yet most of those people did survive. Very few people actually died, and it's sheltering in place and hunkering down. In particular, our house doesn't have... The other thing is to get into an interior room. Uh, most of our open-concept modern housing doesn't have interior rooms. Uh, what we actually have is a shelter-in-place area that's under our stairwell that has the greatest chance of survivability in a storm. We have gear stored in there, and we and the dogs can fit in there together, and if that comes to it, we'll, we'll do that. Uh, we do, and now this is a little bit cheating because I said not to do it, so that's our immediate plan. If you don't have time, something's coming, that's what we got. Um, our neighbors actually have a 50% in the ground, 50% above the ground tornado shelter uh, next door. And if we had time, we would go over there. You know, If you don't hear it, uh, it's just really imminent and it seems really likely we can go share their shelter. They've offered that to us. We are really thinking about putting in a, a slab-mounted Uh, F5-rated shelter, uh, because it is a reality for us. So this is a real one for us. But it's always to get to the safest place that you can. Mobile homes are considered a death sentence. Although I have to tell you, with uh, when I had a mobile home, uh, we did not leave our home uh, in, in most situations. Of course, we also did not ever think we were really going to get hit. We did have one run through the valley behind us, but we weren't there when it happened. Um, let's talk about this week's prepper scenario um this is a little bit of a different one this one makes you think a little bit differently uh, a storm hits your neighborhood we're gonna stick with the storms for a bit hard doesn't matter what kind of storm it is uh you're gonna be without power for at least a week so think about how that affects you and how it would affect this next decision there's a lot of damage to your neighborhood but you got off pretty easy your house is still sound Any real damage to your home is superficial. Others didn't get off so easy. A close neighbor is among them. Their house has literally been destroyed, and it isn't safe to live in. They're basically homeless, and they have nowhere to go. They have no local family, no place to go. They've got to wait on insurance or whatever to get anything out of that. They're just they're homeless. You want to help them by offering them a bed and a room, which you have. At the same time, you don't want them as house guests for the long haul. How long do you let them stay, and how do you start off the arrangement so there's a clear time limit for them to figure out what to do next? How do you do this while being sensitive to how traumatic the current situation is for them? So in other words, you might not want to be telling somebody that you're saying, hey, you guys can have a bed, but you got seven days, you got to get the hell out, uh, while they're still traumatically looking at the destruction of their home. But sooner or later, you have to have that discussion. So how long, again... Here's the question. How long do you let them stay? How do you start off the arrangement so there's a clear time limit for them to figure out what to do next? And how do you do this while being sensitive to how traumatic the current situation is for them? Obviously, you care about them or you wouldn't be offering them the space. 
with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show, which is your feedback. That went long today, but I think there's a lot of good stuff in there today. Anyway, so I talked about uh, Roth IRAs last week a little bit and about the contribution limits and about once you go over a certain income, you can't even do a Roth IRA. And a listener pointed out something I missed, and he's dead on about it. It's called a backdoor Roth. Now, here's how the backdoor Roth exists. You can put money into your IRA. It's fine. Just a plain, regular, conventional IRA, which I don't recommend, uh, without an income limitation and without the, the contribution limits that exist in a Roth IRA. And then, <laughs> this little loophole that's at least there for now, you can then convert that conventional into a Roth. When you do, you have to pay taxes on the money that you convert, right? So as though you had, you know, it, it, this was designed. This wasn't designed for what I'm telling you to do now. It was designed like this. When the Roth came out, let's say you were sitting with $80,000 in your IRA, and let's say you had made uh, $70,000, $60,000 in contributions that you had tax sheltered. You wanted to change it to a Roth, right? So you could roll it into a Roth, and then you just had to pay the tax consequences on the $60,000. Well, you also had, I think, some kind of penalty or something like that. But if you're doing it the same tax year, there's no penalty because there's no taxes other than the ones you would have paid anyway. So in the end, you are right back where you started. So if you exceeded the income limits for a Roth and you wanted to put away uh, $5,000 into a Roth IRA this year, what you would do is you would contribute it to a conventional IRA and then just do a conversion to a Roth. It's a backdoor way into it. I thought that was a, a really unique thing that may not affect most of the people here, but some people will run up against income or contribution limits. And remember, I think that you always win with a Roth. Because in the end, this is the big difference. This is, this is one thing that Dave Ramsey gets absolutely right. People don't contribute to the retirement account based on their tax consequences. They really don't. Every once in a while, somebody writes a check uh, prior to tax day just to, I'd rather put it here than give it to them now. But in general, if people save 10% of their income, they save 10% of their income. Now, they might pay less taxes, but in the end, they still put 10% in the retirement account. So either you put 10% in the retirement account and pay taxes on it when you take it out, or you put 10% in the, tax, uh, the account and never pay taxes on it again. Oh, and by the way, retain the ability to get your money back out, at least the contributions with no penalty or tax consequences, because it's already been taxed. The Roth is a sweet little loophole. I don't know that it'll be around forever. Uh, I do think the government has their eyes on it, but I don't think they can get the money that's already in an account, and I say use the loopholes while they exist. So that's an opening salvo for today. Let's move into some other more recent feedback. Next up, let's take a look over on the uh, genetically modified foods uh, side of things. Uh, there's news out today, actually early last week, uh, that they have now approved the first GMO potato for mass production. Actually, it's been around before, but this one looks like it's going to actually get used. Let me read this to you. This is on the uh, New York Times website. USDA approves modified potato up next French fry fans. Um, a potato genetically engineered to reduce the amounts of a potentially harmful ingredient in French fries and potato chips has been approved for commercial planning, the Department of Agriculture announced on Friday. The potato's DNA has been altered so that less of a chemical called 
acryclamide, which is suspected of causing cancer in people, is produced when the potato is fried. The new potato also resists bruising, a characteristic long sought by potato growers and processors for financial reasons. Potatoes bruised during harvesting, shipping, and storage can lose value or become un unusable. The biotech tubers were developed by J.R. Simplot Company, a privately held company based in Boise, Idaho, which was the initial supplier of frozen french fries to McDonald's in the 60s and still a major supplier. The company's founder, Mr. Simplot, who died in 2008, became a billionaire. He became a billionaire providing McDonald's french fries. Potatoes, actually. The potato is a new wave of genetically, is one of a new wave of genetically modified crops that aim to provide benefits to consumers, not just to farmers, as the widely grown biotech crops like herbicide-tolerant soybeans and corn do. The non-bruising aspect of the potato is similar to that of a genetically engineered non-browning apple developed by Okanagan Specialty Fruits, which are awaiting regulatory approval. So now they're GMOing your apple. But the approval comes as some consumers are questioning the safety of genetically engineered crops and demanding that foods made from them be labeled. Ballot initiatives calling for labeling were rejected by voters in Oregon and Colorado this week after food and seed companies poured millions of dollars into campaigns to defeat the measures. The question now is whether the potatoes, which come in the russet, Burbank, Ranger, russet, and Atlantic varieties, will be adopted by food companies and restaurant chains. At least one group opposed to such crops has already pressed McDonald's to reject them. Genetically modified potatoes failed once before in the late 1990s. Monsanto began selling potatoes genetically engineered to resist Colorado potato beetle, but the market collapsed after big potato users feared customer resistance, told the farmers not to grow them. Simplot itself, after hearing from its fast food chain customers, instructed its farmers to stop growing the Monsanto potatoes. Gee, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Uh, this time around could be different, however, because the potato promises at least potential health benefits to consumers. And unlike Monsanto, Simplot is a long-established power in the potato business, presumably has been clearing the way for acceptance of the product for its customers. I'm going to let you read the rest if you want to, because um, it's a really long article, but I have some thoughts on this. Um, because of my stance against GMOs, I think people think that anything GMO, I think, must inherently be bad, the end, over and out. And my answer on that is not necessarily. The reality is, when it comes to what effect does the simple act, not really simple act, but the, the, the solitary act of using technology to genetically modify the plant really have to our health? Like, does that actually make the, health, the plant itself unhealthy? I really don't feel that it, it probably does. It depends on what you're modifying it with and what you're modifying it to do. So if you're modifying corn to produce the BT toxin so that it will therefore poison caterpillars, I have a whole rash of things I find wrong with that, both from a potential health standpoint of human beings, but also in its effect in causing greater problems. Um, so... I'm not really hip on doing that. In this case, we're trying to make the potato bruise less and produce less of this toxic chemical that it produces when you fry it in 500-degree vegetable oil a la McDonald's. Um, I'm a lot less leery of this. In of itself, I'll get to the other side of the shoe dropping here in a second, but in of itself, this is where I think if you just inherently say, this must be terrible, then you know we're doing what we're accused of doing all the time when we resist genetic modification, which is we're just saying that all sciencey stuff is bad, right? Like like ooh, we're afraid of science. No, I I think 
the Jeff Lawton's response to my question about GMOs and Monsanto was uh, was really spot on. Boy, I'd like to have their budget to do good things with with selective breeding and possibly high level scientific uh, alteration of plants. Maybe I don't know. I just I don't think we have enough information because the people that are doing the work lie to us all the time. I mean, if you want a company that is one of the most inherently evil companies in the world, it is Monsanto. Monsanto is one of the most horrific, evil, bastard corporations on planet Earth. These are people who poisoned knowingly the people of Anniston, Alabama, hid the evidence while they were being sued, and when they finally got caught, the CEO of the company said he was proud of what they did to protect their shareholders. This is a company that should not exist. This company should be eliminated from planet Earth. They do not belong here. They are scum. This other company, I don't necessarily trust them, but I don't put them into the ilk of Monsanto at that level. Here's why. They've modified this this plant to not produce a toxin. That's not what they did. They didn't modify it to be sprayed with a chemical. They modified it so that it is a healthier plant when you do something toxic with it, which is deep fried potato at high temperatures. And if you just didn't do that, you wouldn't have to worry about it. But okay, fine. At least that seems noble. And, and so that it'll bruise less, so it'll ship better. Okay, if you can do that health without, you know, threatening my health, then I'm okay with that. I'd still like that product to be labeled as genetically modified so the consumer has all the information to make an informed decision. And if I want to try it, I'll try it. If you don't, you don't. I think that's a reasonable way to do things. And I think that's why I'm for labeling genetically engineered food. I, the food companies are like, it could hurt us. Well, maybe you'll find out what your market wants and actually focus on giving your market what it wants. Because I'm telling you this, anybody in that industry needs to understand this. And that's where at least Simplot's getting close here. Your customer, when you provide any of the raw materials to make food, is not a farmer and it's not a restaurant. It's the person that eats the food. And that person has a right to know what the hell you're feeding them. And you should want to know what the customer wants and you should be addressing your product to the customer. That's what it seems like Simplot's doing here. Okay, so I'm going to come down on the other side of my concerns, uh, what comes next. But that seems like what they're doing. Monsanto, though, is doing this to sell chemicals and to have a monopoly on a life form. That's their agenda, to sell more chemicals. And more on that in a bit when I talk about something different with GMOs. This is my concern. So here's the other shoe I mentioned four times. What you do is you get your potato approved on the benevolent concept of, oh, look, this, this is okay. It'll cause less cancer now. And do we really know that? Do we know what the code's done? But let's say it, let's say their, their claim is valid, that it does. And, and it won't bruise. That's all we've done. And then they get the rubber stamp, and it gets approved, and they get the GMO potato into all the markets. Then they begin the process of what's known as gene stacking, which means we take the already modified plant, and we start stacking more modifications into it. So then we say, you know what? We do have a problem with this Colorado potato beetle. And the idea Monsanto had wasn't really bad. You might even work with Monsanto on a joint licensing agreement since they've already done the work. And see, now the GMO potato is into the food system, so it's much easier to add the next stacking. And then you modify the potato so that it's resistant to the potato beetle because it produces some sort of a toxin. Okay, And then we say, listen, this is good for organic. 
I mean, the organic people should be all over this. This is a sales pitch. I'm not, I'm not speaking as myself right now. This is a sales pitch. I mean, what we've just done is we've, we've eliminated the need to spray the Beatles. Oh, what could go wrong? <laughs> Glad you asked. Here's some more GMO news. So on that, I, uh, if you can tell, once again, after uh, a long event, I have a little bit of a strained voice. So I'm going to use a little bit of a crutch here just because it worked out this way. Uh, this is on NPR's The Salt. And uh, it's, it's farmers face tough choice in ways to fight new strains of weeds. And uh, there's an audio version of the story. It's about five minutes long. So I'm just going to play that for you again. This is on NPR. Hopefully nobody wants to sue me over this. I am giving them full credit for it. And I will put a link in the show notes where you can find the original story uh, and the supporting audio along with transcript, download, and a lot of other stuff. So here you go. This is the consequences of using GMOs the way that they're currently being used when it comes to things like, oh, we can, we can spray them with herbicides or use them to fight pests. You can trace the following pattern in every kind of conflict. Somebody makes a radical improvement in offensive weaponry, and then someone else improves the defense. It's true in war, it's true in football, and it's definitely true in the epic battle between farmers and weeds. For the last decade or so, the weeds have been losing badly. Farmers have been winning with genetically engineered crops and the weed killer Roundup. Now some weeds are becoming Roundup resistant, and there's a big argument about what farmers should try next. Here's NPR's Dan Charles. The combination of Roundup and so-called Roundup-ready crops was so amazing when it came on the market 15 years ago, it made grown men giddy. Roundup killed everything except for your cotton, soybeans, or corn. Those crops were genetically engineered to withstand the herbicide. It changed American agriculture. It made controlling weeds so simple, farmers went out and rented more land. Farms got bigger. And then the magic started to wear off. At different places in different parts of the country, farmers realized that some weeds were not dying. In Georgia, it was a plant called Palmer amaranth, or pigweed. It started just north of us here, three or four counties up. Randy Bryant grows cotton in Irwin County, Georgia. At first, he thought it was just somebody else's problem. And then all of a sudden, uh, it was all over South Georgia. We had it everywhere. This strain of Palmer amaranth has a genetic mutation that makes it resistant to glyphosate, the weed-killing chemical in Roundup. Pigweed can grow three inches a day. A single plant can release close to a million seeds. This is a bully. Let it sprout beside cotton seedlings, and the poor cotton won't stand a chance. Farmers in Georgia, like Van Grantham, are hiring people to go into cotton fields and pull the pigweed by hand. I got a brother-in-law told me this year he spent $120 an acre on hand labor. That's about four times what weed control used to cost. Farmers are looking for solutions, and the man they turn to is Stanley Culpepper. He's a weed scientist at the University of Georgia and the state's expert on cotton weeds. This time of year, he spends his days driving from county to county, delivering talks to cotton farmers. We all agree that there can be no glyphosate-resistant palm amaranth up at planting, right? We cross that bridge. We know it has to be no palmer at planting, or you probably won't pick your crop. If you do pick your crop, you won't be economically sustainable. Culpepper grew up in North Carolina and comes from a long line of farmers. He talks to these cotton growers like a football coach giving his players some tough love. The days of easy weed killing are over, he tells them. You can't be lazy anymore. You go out and look at the field, you say, oh, I got me a few more days. And what happens when you say, I'm going to wait a few days, those pigweeds come up in four or five inches when you get there and you can't kill them. 
You'll have to spray a whole bunch of different chemicals to overwhelm the enemy, Culpepper says. Some will kill your cotton if you aren't careful. Now here, he says, here's something completely different. He puts up a new slide, a picture of a field that's covered with a layer of rye lying flat on the ground. This residue works as well as any weed killer, he says. Pigweed just hates it. So we can grow this cover crop of rye, and we leave some narrow gaps in it. That's where we plant our rows of cotton. I'm still working out a few kinks in this technique, he says, but in just a few years, I think this is something you should try. If we can figure this out, this program is the most sustainable program we as cotton people could do. No question, bar none, for resistance management and for polymer control. So here's Stanley Culpepper's recipe for surviving in a world of Roundup-resistant weeds. Do lots of different things. Some of them involve chemicals, some don't. Some will mean more work. But there are other recipes out there, and the one that may be really tempting for farmers is more genetically engineered crops. At this same meeting, there are representatives from three big cotton seed companies, Dow, Monsanto, and Bayer. Those companies are selling or plan to sell very soon crops that have been engineered to tolerate other herbicides that will kill pigweed. So farmers may be able to spray those herbicides, old ones called 2,4-D and dicamba, right over their crops. Some environmentalists are angry about these new products. The Natural Resources Defense Council, for instance, says 2,4-D is dangerous and ought to be banned. And David Mortensen, a weed ecologist at Penn State, predicts that weeds will evolve resistance to these herbicides too. It's a kind of treadmill, he says, where farmers constantly need new weed killers. When one herbicide fails, then we add a second herbicide and you churn it for a while and then add a third herbicide to that package. And uh, I am convinced that that is not a sustainable path forward. Stanley Culpepper, meanwhile, stands somewhere in the middle of this argument. Let's be clear. I want all the new technology that's economically and environmentally friendly for our growers that we can get. But we can't misuse the technologies, he says. We can't overuse just one or two of them. He thinks his farmers have learned that lesson. And what happened with Roundup will not happen again. Dan Charles, NPR News. Well, I like the solutions this Culpepper cat has, but I, I don't agree with him on the fact that it's it's not likely to happen again. I think in the uh, the words of the song, uh, The Greenfields of France, uh, by the Dropkick Murphys, it happened again and again and again and again, and it will continue to happen again and again and again and again. Um, and this is my problem with GMOs. So... For, for those of you that are out there going, I know, Jack, you said amaranth is a wonder plant and we should be growing it. And it, if it grows by itself as a weed, by God, stop growing cotton and just let the amaranth grow and harvest that. Yeah, um, see, that doesn't work with Palmer amaranth. Palmer amaranth is not the kind of amaranth you grow for food. Um, it is actually an edible form of amaranth, but it's probably not the most palatable, and the yields on it are pretty poor uh, compared to a more improved variety of amaranth. Certainly, you could work with this plant and uh, develop it into a more palatable thing. The other problem is... If you're growing it in an agricultural situation, it's not really considered good for fodder for your livestock. Um, while it's a fine plant for livestock to eat, and they will certainly eat some of it, if you're growing it in an intensively agricultural environment where you're dumping tons of nitrogen onto the soil, uh, it has an ability to take up excess nitrogen because of its fast growth rate, and you actually can poison your livestock 
by, by grazing them on Palmer amaranth grown in a high nitrogen environment because of the excess nitrogen in it. So it's, it's just not a good yielder. It's spiny as shit. The seeds on it actually hurt, unlike some other amaranths. Um, it was cultivated by Native Americans. Uh, it's, it's not completely useless, but it's, if you were going to grow amaranth, you wouldn't grow this. So you've got a plant that doesn't really uh, submit to control by grazing because if it's, if it's in a monocrop environment, because it's the only thing that can survive in the situation you've created, it's not good for grazing. Uh, it's not good as a yielding plant, and it will destroy your yields if you're a cotton farmer, which is how these guys make their money, by farming cotton. The solution that um, Monsanto and the other big ag chem companies have is, well, we'll just modify the cotton further, and instead of spraying it with Roundup, we'll spray it with 2,4-D, which is like one element off of Agent Orange. And their solution, and see, they say it's not sustainable. It's really not, but as far as the uh, Monsantos of the world are concerned, it's totally sustainable. You'd think that they'd be upset when one of their chemicals fail and they have to make a new chemical and a new genetic modified crop. No, they can charge for it and reissue patents and be less sensitive to the time limitations on patents, etc. If you can't see what's going on here, I've known this for years and I've never said anything. I've waited to see if anybody would explain it. And you, you should be able to see it in the fact that one of the biggest companies doing this, in addition to Monsanto, is Bayer. It's Bayer, like people that make aspirin. The genetically modified chem ag business is exactly the same as the pharmaceutical business. You produce a drug, the drug works for a time, you patent the drug so no one else can produce it, you keep the price of it artificially high, and then when a disease uh, develops a way around it, or whenever you can find a way to tweak it a little bit, you create a new drug and you sell it to the same market over and over again. That's what these guys are doing. They're totally okay with this. Uh, if you had asked any of these people that were behind uh, this glyphosate uh, modification gene in corn and soy and cotton and other things, uh, well, not corn, soy and cotton and, and other plants, uh, do, do you believe that in time weeds like amaranth will become resistant to, to your product Roundup? And if you had them hooked up to a lie detector test, they would have had to say yes to pass the test. They knew this was going to happen. There's there's no surprise on they feign so oh god we didn't know uh, but we'll we'll do it again it'll work out this time yeah again and again and again and again and for those of you that say you know what Jack at least it's cotton it's it's cotton you know if we spray an herbicide on cotton and somebody makes you a pair of socks out of it that herbicide's not going to hurt you are you that are you that daft that you think it would uh, no I'm not I I actually think that uh, I wouldn't worry about from a health standpoint, from a consciousness standpoint, I prefer to, if I'm going to use a cotton clothing, for it to be uh, an organically grown cotton. But that's just a, a decision made from a conscience level. Okay. But from, you know, if I'm going to wear a pair of socks that are cotton socks that were made uh, from, from mass produced cotton, I'm not going to worry about it. I'm really not health wise. So I'm not worried about that. Do you know how much shit cotton's in though? Seriously. Uh, cotton seed meal and cotton oil. Cottonseed oil. If you start reading ingredients lists on foods for people, you'll find cottonseed oil in the majority of mass-produced products in America today because it's a cheap oil. It's a byproduct. There's actually a movement, by the way, to actually um, turn cotton into more of a seed, uh, more of as a food crop. Uh, when you look at the global annual production of cotton, it's about 25 million tons. 25 million tons of cotton are grown a year across the world. 
Uh, that gives you 40 million tons of cotton seed, almost double, not quite, but almost double the amount of cotton you get in seed. And you only need so much seed to replant. If it's a genetically modified seed, you can't replant it anyway. So, because you got to go buy your seed from the seed company that owns a patent on a life form. See, so you got this. This basically, what you would look at is almost a waste product, and there is uh, there's a hitch in this, and it's called glossful. It's a naturally occurring compound found throughout the cotton plant uh, and within each seed. It's toxic to humans. It's also toxic, toxic to pig and poultry, although cows can deal with it in moderation thanks to the fact that they have the digestive power of all the micro, microflora in their multi-stomach systems. So if you start feeding cotton seed uh, meal in large quantities to your pigs, you'll kill them. And if you start feeding... Uh, cottonseed oil, uh, cottonseed meal to people, you'll kill them. But what they're looking to do now is whether do so through some sort of processing or do so through um, some sort of genetic modification is to come up with a cottonseed meal that can be a staple food source. Uh, we'll, of course, we'll spray it with 2,4-D and other chemicals that we'll add, and we'll wonder why cancer rates and all other types of modern autoimmune and inflammatory-based diseases continue to rise. See, this is my problem with GMO. My problem isn't the very act of doing it in of itself. It's what we're modifying it to do. So how does this link back to the first one? With okay, Jack, all this stuff's about spraying chemicals. If you did modify a potato to be resistant to the Colorado potato beetle, what's the problem? You make super potato beetles, just like they've made uh, super worms now in the cornfields. There's a root knot worm uh, that eats the corn root. There's another worm that eats the corn cob. And they made a corn plant that produces uh, Bacillus thungosus, which is a naturally occurring bacteria that kills these little caterpillars and worms if they eat it. And if you eat it, it doesn't really hurt you, at least in the quantities you would get if somebody was spraying their crops with it and knocking back the population. Well, what they did is they made it the plant produce its own pesticide. Yay. And the little worms kept eating the roots and dying and dying and dying and dying in large numbers. And unlike a spray where some would get away and uh, there'd be other animals there to balance populations, they just wiped out every single caterpillar and worm that, that you know, could get sick from the BT. And what do you get in the survivors? You get superworms. And now these worms are resistant to a natural element that had helped keep their population in check and properly managed systems for thousands of years. So in other, well, millions of years, honestly. So what that means now is the organic farmer has lost a tool that they could use as a supplement and nature itself has lost a tool that had worked for nature for long before we walked the earth. This bacterium specifically existed as a control mechanism in a natural system. And they've basically ruined it in 10 years with genetic modification. And now they want to do it with potato beetles. So if you've ever dealt with potato beetles, they are a problem. Well, at least there are ways to control them right now. And if we keep using the silver bullet approach instead of these blended natural approaches, you'll keep making a stronger and stronger beetle until there's nothing that will kill it that won't at least kill you too. Yay us. 
That's the problem with this GMO approach. If we were only modifying plants to be more drought resistant and uh, get less bruising and have better flavors, and actually I think it is scientifically possible that we could modify food to actually be more nutritious. I don't think golden rice does that. I think it's a big lie and nothing but a big hype propaganda campaign funded by GMO interests to look all nice and fuzzy and warm. But I think it could be done. It absolutely could be done. It's just I don't think that they have any interest in actually doing that. I really don't. Let's take another one. So next up, we continue to see uh, a, a nation where those in the most trusted roles in society violate that trust. Uh, this is on Concealed Nation, and the title of the article is More Insight into the Saratoga County Sheriff Incident. We speak to the man that was slapped by the officer. I'm going to give you the, the, the simple Jack Spierko explanation, and you can go read the article and see the video for yourself. But what happened was this man and his friend were inside a local Walmart store shopping. Uh, they had a gun in the back of his car, which was locked. Uh, a law enforcement officer, a sheriff's, a sheriff's department law enforcement officer, uh, apparently noticed the weapon himself looking at people's cars, uh, claims that a person called it in. Of course, there's no record of who or where or when uh, anybody called it in. So basically you got a cop walking through a parking lot looking into people's vehicles, sees the gun. They track down the, the, the guy in the store and his friend. Uh, he brings him over to the car and demands to be able to search the car. He already knows who he is because he has run his plates. Um, he makes a big deal out of it, and he's mouthing off this young man who's done nothing wrong or nothing illegal, by the way. It is completely legal uh, in New York State, uh, where this guy is, to have a gun in your vehicle as long as it's not loaded. The gun was, in fact, not loaded. It actually had been purchased that day. And he slaps this guy in the face and mouths him off and basically says, stop resisting when he smacks him in the face. I don't mean a little tiny touch, which would be a problem enough. I mean, bitch slaps the guy in the face. Now, the man that was slapped did the right thing in that he simply just stood there. He looked like he wanted to kill the guy, but he just stood there. What this cop needed was his ass seriously kicked at that point. Of course, there was another officer standing by who was also an oath breaking piece of shit and should be uh, suspended without pay pending against investigation like it. Thankfully, this officer is. And if anybody knows these two people, please tell them that I think they're both oath-breaking pieces of shit. And I actually think that the guy that stood there while it happened is a bigger oath-breaking piece of shit. And neither one of you deserve a badge. Neither one of you deserve a badge. This is what I'm talking about. You officers that say, I'm the good guy and I don't do this, when you stand by and you watch somebody else do it, you are an oath breaking piece of shit that is the only word for it and you know what people say you're a cop basher and a cop hater i am not i am not i am a criminal basher and a criminal hater i don't care that you wear a badge it doesn't give you magic freaking powers it doesn't give you rights that other people don't it entrusts you with privileges and responsibilities to defend people and i want to summarize this by telling you the mindset of the piece of shit that hit this man. This is from the article. Asked if he would have handled the matter the same way again, Glantz said he would, but not if he knew he was being filmed. He acknowledged that he did not know the incident was being videotaped. Quote, I was concerned. It was a public safety issue, the sergeant said. Quote, if I had to do it all over again, I'd probably do the same thing. If I knew the camera was there, no, because it does look bad.
Yeah, those of you that live in Saratoga County, New York, do something about this piece of shit. Insist that he not be allowed to be a law enforcement officer, at least in your county, nor I say your state, nor anywhere at all. Apparently this guy already put somebody in the hospital in a previous incident where he caused a wreck by driving like an idiot, and he was reinstated after doing that. He was supposedly in pursuit of somebody, but he just was completely reckless. I think somebody ended up crippled over this guy. This man doesn't deserve a badge. He doesn't deserve a badge. And his only remorse is that he got caught. And if you look at his attitude, I'd play it for you, but this is one of those things you have to see. But if you look at his face, if you look at his attitude and all this, this guy does it. This guy should see. This guy is proof that you're putting the, the, the administrators and the people that hire officers are putting people on police forces that don't belong there. This guy, you can look at the way this guy handles himself, and you can tell this guy should never be in law enforcement. And I'll tell you the truth: I should not be in law enforcement. I should not. I have a temper. I have a temper, and there are people that I would probably club the shit out of. Now, it wouldn't be this guy. But that's not what you get to do when you're a cop. You don't go to a cop, become a cop, so you can practice your MMA skills on people that have to submit to you beating the shit out of them. You become a cop to, to defend others. And I'll tell you what, this, this officer, I'd love, I would love the chance to climb into an MMA ring with this guy. Without his badge without his taser, without his club, with nothing but his big fat mouth. And I'd like to see him, I'd like to see how tough he is facing another man on equal footing. In fact, this thin guy, kind of thin guy compared to him, a little bit taller, young kid looking guy that tolerated his shit, I bet you, I just bet you this officer wouldn't be such a badass standing face to face to this guy in a sporting arrangement for a fight where it's completely legal and he had to stand on even grounds. Because bullies are the same all over the place. And that's all this guy is. In addition to being a piece of shit, he's a bully. And it's got to stop. And please, please understand me. I am not anti-cop. I'm anti-criminal. When you violate somebody's rights, when you hold them without the authority to hold them, he was never detained, this guy. He was never told he was being detained. And the officer had no right to detain him. He ran his information without probable cause. The simple presence of a legal object in your vehicle, gun or not, does not warrant what he did. And he struck him, which is assault. This man is a criminal, and he is using the badge and the uniform to, to perpetrate criminal activity. He is a criminal. He doesn't just deserve to be fired. He deserves to go to jail with a whole bunch of other people that know he used to be a cop. Maybe he won't be such a false badass in the future if he realizes that's what's facing him. And the way that we do, we, we make this happen and we take back our nation from this segment of what's going wrong as you continue to film these people. You film them and you record them and you film them and you record them and you constantly make it available and you put it on 47 different servers so that they can never take it down or get it back and we expose what's going on. And any of you, again, that are police officers and are mad at me for my stance, I don't really give a shit. I don't really care. If you are mad at me because I am pissed off that a law enforcement officer struck a citizen who did not violate the law here, violated his rights and assaulted him, and you are also a cop, I want you to do me a favor. I want you today to take your badge, and I want you to take it to where you work, 
And with your gun, I want you to put those on the desk of your supervisor along with a letter of resignation. And I want you to go get a job picking up dog shit or something like that that you're qualified to do. Because if you think it's wrong for me to be upset that this criminal who has the same job as you did what he did, just because he has the same job as you, you are not qualified for the job that you have. This man makes your job harder. This man makes you look bad. And I'm going to say it again. I am freaking sick and tired of hearing, a few bad apples, a few bad apples. A few bad apples are people like Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver. These are not bad apples. They're criminals. And as long as you say that, turn your badge in. Turn your badge in. If you're going to minimize this in any way, turn your badge in. You're not qualified for the job. If you're a cop that would have stood by while this piece of shit hit this guy and not stepped in and said, you know what, hold on, I'm taking over, get out of here, then you're not qualified to do your job. You're not qualified. You're not qualified to be an officer if you won't defend the rights and freedoms of all, including those that are under investigation, if you want to say that's what it is. Just because someone's under investigation doesn't mean that they are guilty. This is the training you get in the academy, and then apparently some of you immediately forget about it. Keep filming them. Keep filming them. Keep filming them. Keep filming them. This is a place we can make a difference. One person with an iPhone or a good camera filming shit like this can do a hell of a lot more than Stop Hillary 2016 ever will. Just saying. Let's go on and take another one. Totally different situation. I want to read this to you. This comes to me from a listener named Todd. And I think it's something that's it's sad, but we can learn from it. And it's something that I really want to drive home when it comes to prepping. And it's why I've changed my, my prepping uh, se- uh, stuff that I do on Monday, my scenarios, uh, from the conflicted ones that are like all end-of-the-world zombie marching stuff to the things that actually happen to people every day. Imagine if this was you and this was a scenario. Um, TikTok has a new meaning around here. Bottom line up front: Don't waste your time. Don't waste time with your preps. You may not, don't waste time with your preps. You may not have as much as you time as you think. My wife, 48 years old and in great health, was suddenly diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Luckily, we have done the right things financially. We have solid medical insurance, life insurance, no debt other than our house, which is nearly paid off, an adequate amount of savings. However, we aren't where we'd like to be with our preps. We have made a big improvement in 2014, but a lot of planned projects will need to go on hold as we allocate time and money to our new normal. You have talked often about the things that are most likely to happen, medical emergencies or lost jobs. I And I wanted to add that not only are these things more likely than a zombie apocalypse, don't underestimate the impact one of these events will have on the rest of your planning. Also, you must remain flexible regarding other aspects of your life. Our risk calculus has changed, requiring us to re-examine our careers and outside activities. Example, I'm an avid motorcyclist. You have to be mentally prepared to make the changes necessary to safeguard your family. You can't hold on to the way things used to be and hope for the best. You must take responsibility and action for yourself. No one else will. Thanks for all you do, Jack. Because of you, my family and I are much better prepared, both mentally and practically, uh, than we would have been a year ago. Todd. Uh, Todd, I, I wish you and your wife the best, and I hope she wins this fight because it is a fight. And um, 
I don't have any details other than what I just read to you guys, so I don't know how serious uh, the progression of this is. And cancers have a, a tendency to be things that, uh, based on how far they've gone before you find them, has a real impact on whether or not they're curable. Uh, and even when they are, how much a person has to go through and, and the cost and, and other things like that. So, um, you know, uh, all we can do right now is wish Todd the best and send our best thoughts and prayers to he and his family and his wife. But this is the type of thing that hits you. And this is the type of thing that happens to somebody all the time. Uh, there's over a hundred thousand members of the TSP audience, and that probably means that uh, once a day, uh, one member of this audience or someone they know and care about is uh, is stricken with either a cancer or serious health ailment. One a day. One a day. If you just do the math and figure it all out, when you look at cardiac issues, when you look at uh, serious accidents, when you look at localized natural disasters that destroy homes and, and, and cause injury to people, when you look at car accidents, uh, when you look at suicides, uh, and, uh, you know, when you look at just workplace accidents uh, and all the other causes of death seri or serious injury, uh, serious illnesses, it's at least one a day, just mathematically. I want you to think about that, one a day. And that means that sooner or later, we all are going to probably deal with this on one level or another, whether it's ourselves, someone we care about, or even someone that's, you know, one layer outside of the immediate family, uh, you know, someone that's uh, an aunt or an in-law or something like that we're going to deal with. And most of us that are married, you know, we said certain words till death do us part. It's, it's seldom that we actually uh, tend to, uh, to both go at the same time. Right, so one always ends up out outlasting the other, and that has to be dealt with. And uh, when it happens in your old age, I think most people, if they're pragmatic and realistic, they get to a point where they they realize that we are all mortal, and they accept that death is is part of their cycle, and that you know there's there's a time that if you die after a certain point, you're not really likely. <laughs> I can't wait to go, but. You are at a point of acceptance, and your life is in such a place that you're not really someone that other people are heavily dependent on. Everybody, I think, that, that, that's out there with meaningful existence, people that care about them, people that will miss them, and, and is useful to, to the people around them in, in helping them with their lives and things like that. But there's a difference between when a person that's 85 or 95 years old as a grandmother passes away or even as a great-grandmother at that age, and when you lose a, a woman who still has young children. It's it's a, just a different strain on the family. But it happens. Like I said earlier in the show when we did the history segment, the most dangerous thing you can do if you don't want to die is live. The day you're born, uh, the time has begun to your death. And that's not a reason to be uh, depressed or anything like that. But it's a, it's a fundamental reality we all have to deal with, that there is a, a time that we're here for. And there's a time that we're not here anymore. And we need to do the very best we can while we're here to make an important impact in the lives of people. Um, and the irony is the greater the good that we do, the more we're missed when we're gone. But I also believe that the, 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 the greater the good that we do, the more we truly live on in the actions of others. And all we can do is accept our mortality. I mean, will one day mankind discover the secret to immortality? I, I don't know. I don't know that it would be good if we did, honestly. 
Um, it'd be very tempting, tempting to use if we did, would it not? I mean, is there anybody that you, that you care about that you're really ready for them to not be here anymore? I, I have to say not really for myself. Um, so please realize that what I'm teaching you guys every day about sustainability, uh, about preparations and about life is, is, is something that's relevant to every single, single person out there. And sooner or later, every person deals with disasters, whether they're natural disasters from a standpoint of weather or whether they're natural disasters from a standpoint of health. Um, it's very seldom that, that you go through your whole life and just live to be 100 and, and pass away in your sleep. It's not, not very common. And it's, it's, it's completely ridiculous that everybody that you care about in your life would, would have that pattern. And so we all face our mortality and we all face the, the weaknesses as people. And if you're the person that does everything, you, you, you need to think about, well, who's going to do it if you're not there? Because tomorrow morning you might not be there. Or tomorrow morning you may be there and you may be in a situation where you need others to do everything for you. Um, it happens. It happens where you're simply weakened. You know, it happens on tiny little levels and it happens on big levels. Right now I, uh, I injured my hand in West Virginia. It wasn't really that big a deal, but my, my index finger on my left hand is, is still, um, You know, it hurts. It doesn't hurt like I'm sitting around going, oh, my God, it's in pain. But when I try to do things, just my ability, I can't bend it to where the fingertip touches the, the finger uh, on that hand. And uh, I can't really rest it, you know, put it in a splint or something because my entire life revolves around making sure I get my business taken care of, which involves a computer and all the things I have to do on the homestead. But there's certain things just gripping them are hard to do. That's, that's extremely minor. Um, what if I'd hurt that hand to the point where it was completely incapacitated? Now my wife has to take care of everything around here. Uh, or what if it was something along the lines that Todd's going through where I'm going to be in a hospital for three months in and out of a hospital going through chemotherapy. It can happen. Uh, that's why we prepare for those things first. That's, that's why we do it first. That's why we start out with the, the, the family-level personal disaster is the first thing we prepare for. Because if we get ready to do that, then we can prepare for the disaster that affects our neighborhood And then we can prepare for the disaster that you know affects our, our local geography. And what you find is by the time you get to that level, you're 80% to being as prepared as you could be for you know a global disaster. It's the simple progression. If we're if we're driving from Florida to Maine, we have to go to Georgia first. And so it would make sense that we prepare in our trip to deal with going through Georgia on our way to Maine, realizing we might not even ever get to Maine. We have to start that journey, though. And it always seems that things seem to hit you at the time you're least able to take care of them. You're least able to absorb them at the time that you're your weakest. Well, that's because most people live most of their lives being very, very weak and not being prepared. And it's like, oh, at a time like this, and really, what would be a good time? Well, there's never a good time to be told someone you love has cancer. But there could be a, a time not as bad. But for most people that would even say that, well... When would not have been as bad? When would you have been more economically capable of dealing with this? And the, re the answer is that most people are not economically prepared to deal with this. And I don't think anybody can truly be, but I think it can be a lot better off. And it sounds like Todd and his family are. So I wish you the best, and I thank you for having uh, the courage to share that story. And I hope it impacts the lives of others today uh, and puts a little bit of a serious lighting of a candle under an ass or two because it's necessary. It's necessary that people 
please be in touch with the fact that we're mortal beings and that you're probably more loved and cared about and would be missed more than you can imagine. So it's important for you to do what you have to do today to make sure that if you go down either temporarily or for the count, that others out there uh, that depend on you are looked after uh, and that you yourself are looked after because the hope is always that when we're given these, 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 these pieces of information about ourselves that we will fight and we will win the fight and we'll come out the other side of the fight. Um, and I don't know about you, but I don't want to go through the fight. I don't want to have to fight cancer. If I do, so be it, but I don't want to. But if I'm going to, uh, then when I come out the other side of it, it would also be good if I wasn't bankrupted. So it makes sense to do the things necessary to be prepared for the worst. And that worst is not always an economic collapse of the United States. Sometimes it's the the spiritual, psychological, and economic collapse of a family that we're trying to avoid. Again, thank you, Todd, and I wish you the best. Okay, next up, let's go back into the uh, dirty word, world of uh, political leanings for a minute. Let's talk about uh, what just happened as I go into this new story. Um, first of all, I, I want to point out something. So I went on and I, I did my show on not voting, and I said, here's why it's not going to matter. Uh, that you will end up with a Republican majority in the Senate and a Republican majority in the House. And I actually called uh, the race in the Senate to be most likely to come out as a 51-49 in favor of the Republicans, and it came out 52-48. So I, I think I did pretty good there. What do you think? And I said that me voting wouldn't change anything, and I didn't vote, and it didn't, and it wouldn't have. And uh, in my district, for all of you that, that, that are uh, big fans of the GOP, they won everything that they ran for. In fact, they were incumbents in everything that they ran for. And in spite of the big change, the reality is that 90% of incumbents run, won their office for a, you know, a second, third, fourth, fifth term in a row. So a Congress with an approval rating below 20% still managed to have uh, 90% of the people uh, who are failures at what they do retain their employment. Uh, that doesn't happen in the real world. It only happens in the world of government, whether it be by election or appointment. doesn't matter. You can completely suck and stay in office. And there's a reason, and the reason is that they're all bought and paid for. And uh, we actually can tell you right now who the 24 most influential members of the oligarchy at present time are. We even have a list of them thanks to Fortune magazine who put it together. Let me read this article to you off Fortune. The Brookings, Inst Brookings Institution uh, has developed a list of America's oligarchy, those who are exercising immense financial influence in Washington through campaign contributions. We don't wait, need to wait until Tuesday night to name a handful of billionaires among the winners in this midterm election. Recent court decisions removing limits on campaign activity unleashed a flood of spending by the politically inclined super-rich, and, and disclosure rules haven't kept pace, meaning much of what those players have done to exert their influence will remain in the dark. But Daryl West, a director of governance studies at the Brookings Institution, has done his best to comb through disclosure reports, and by combining that information with qualitative judgments about so softer forms of power come with a ranking of our new oligarchy. West's index accompanies his new books in the same topic, Billionaire's Reflections in the Upper Crust. He tells Fortune it's a critique, not so much of the fact that they're spending a lot of money, that's perfectly fine, but the lack of transparency in some cases and the impact on governance. The names on this, his list will be more familiar, more than familiar to our readers. Indeed, many have received profile treatment from Fortune in recent years 
who have been the subject of regular coverage. So in the interest of shedding some light on their backstories and motivations, here's West rankings along with links to some of the coverage of our listees. So I'm going to read this list of people to you. And who are the first people on it? Charles and David Koch, the Koch brothers, who every left-leaning college student who wants to change the world for the better runs around and talks about the Koch brothers and how they're in charge of everything. So they are number one on the oligarchy list for this year's campaign contribution based on what we can find out. Here's an interesting thing about the Koch brothers. You spell their last name K-O-C-H, and most of the morons running around screaming Koch brothers this and Koch brothers that don't even know how to spell the name of these people. They think it's the Koch brothers like the people that manufacture the syrupy sweet soft drink that we know and love as Coke, a cola, have a Coke and a smile. So most of the informed about the Coke brothers don't even know who the Coke brothers are or what they're doing. And what's very interesting is that if you wanted to put them on the paradigm of left-right, yeah, you would put them on the right of the dichotomy. But who's number two? Michael Bloomberg. Michael Bloomberg. Number two in the oligarchy. Next, Tom Steyer, Sheldon Adelson, Rupert Murdoch, John Joe Ricketts, Robert Bob Mercer, Paul Singer, Peter Thiel of PayPal fame, fame uh, George and Jonathan Soros. Hmm, they sound right wing. The Soros people, they're they're right wing, right? No, oh, no, no. John and Laura Arnold, they're right wing. The right wing's in charge. Of, oh no, Bill and Melinda Gates. <sighs> they're just statists. They're not really on either side. The family of the late Peter Lewis. Mark and Priscilla Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett. I think he's a good friend of the president. Didn't he tell us that like a hundred thousand times while he was running for office? My good friend Warren Buffett says, right? Um, Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos, Pierre and Pamela Ottomar, James Jim Simons, David Geffen, Penny Pritzker, and I don't know that one at all. Mark Anderson, Peter Peterson, Donald Trump and Alice Walton. Those 24 people have more say-so over what your government is going to do in the next two years than the people you just argued with every person around you that didn't agree with you about that you think is running it. Do you think... Do you think your elected officials are more likely to listen to Charles and David Koch than they are you? And you know what? That same official is probably more likely to listen to Michael Bloomberg than you too, even though the Koch brothers and the Bloomberg, I mean, those are just as opposite, diametrically opposed to each other. Oh, not really? You mean they, they have different takes on a few things, but in the end they, they both want all your money and all control of all your life? Yeah, that's it. These are the people that run your country. And all of the, all of the resistance on the left to how bad this is, that the big money's coming in and corporations are recognized as people with rights to free speech and all. Do you notice they never mention people that are on their own, on the list, off their side? Like Michael Bloomberg? I mean, do you notice that? Well, but Jack, Bloomberg's number two. The Koch brothers are number one. I bet number three's a right winger, right? Uh, the number three is Tom Steyer. You know who he is? They call him the Jolly Green Banker. The Jolly Green Banker. I'm not. I, I shit you not. Uh, let me read their little their little piece on, on on Tom. Just a piece of it, anyway. Banker and philanthropist Tom Steyer says the idea of doing business, doing everything perfectly without government involvement, is ridiculous. That's why he's fighting to convince politicians and CEOs uh, that going green isn't a sacrifice. It's an opportunity. 
Okay, so, uh, you know, I'm for environmental intelligence and things like this, but this guy is a big piece of the climate change, global warming, bullshit cabal that would love to see a carbon tax, and he's the jolly green banker. Do you know why? Because the banks will make a fortune on cap and trade. It's green. Oh, yeah. They want green. But you know what kind of green they want. It's not a cleaner planet. It's more of your green money. Next name on the list is uh, Sheldon Adelson. And if you asked him if he was a Republican or a Democrat, he would say he's a Republican because the Democrats left him. You can look up his bio and find out more about that. But how did he make his money? He owns uh, great big giant casinos in Las Vegas. Um, and so he is a former Democrat, now a Republican, because Republicans are more supportive of Israel. That's his justification for it. So he's really a leftist when it comes to government policy. Uh, the next person on the list is Rupert Murdoch. I guess he's right-winger. He's got it, owns, you know, the, the Fox News and other, uh, properties around that entire media empire. And then you have John Joe Ricketts. Ricketts is the guy that built TD Ameritrade. He's worth quite a few billions of dollars, and uh, he's he's kind of all over the map. But you definitely call him a uh, a right wing guy, politically active. He's the guy that tends to support right wing candidates uh, to a large degree. Certainly was very um, very writing heavy checks to uh, to get rid of President Obama in his last election. So we have another right wing guy there. Robert Mercer, Robert Bob Mercer, is the uh, co-head of a company called Renaissance Technologies. Uh, they're a little secretive hedge fund firm that manages about $25 billion using fast training computer programs uh, in, uh, in Long Island. And they're definitely, I guess you'd say, on the right wing of the dichotomy, at least for now. Next guy on the list, Paul Singer. He's a hedge fund manager. He's uh, decidedly toward the uh, the right side. He was... Uh, involved with uh, Mitt Romney uh, for quite a while over the years. So that's another one there. Peter Thiel is probably the only person on the list that I would legitimately call a libertarian, uh, which means he would be right-wing according to everybody that doesn't know what a libertarian is. But uh, uh, Peter Thiel is the guy that started PayPal. And uh, when he realized that he wouldn't be able to turn it into what he really wanted to, he sold it, made his billions, and went off to do other things like the seasteading movement. So... Uh, I'm not sure who he's backing right now, but he probably could be all over the map. Uh, next up, George and Jonathan Soros. George Soros, of course, is uh, one of the richest human beings on planet Earth, and he is a flat-out, avowed socialist uh, that is for socialism at every level and wants your guns and wants to control your life. Uh, so you've got that there. So you, you know, you're pretty well represented here. I could keep going, but... Um, you can look up the rest of these people for yourself. Basically, what you find out is that there's big money on both sides of the aisle. And if you actually go a little bit deeper, you'll find out that in many instances, the same people that are considered avowed leftists or avowed right wing will often fund both candidates in many elections. Uh, that way, whoever wins owes them. That's how you actually control a society. You don't fund one side or the other. You fund both sides. Uh, and you work with both sides, and you control both sides, and both of them are puppets with your hand up their ass. You don't really care who wins. Uh, if I knew Mitt Romney was going to lose the last election, and some of these people put big money into his campaigns, don't you think they knew it too? Do you really think they didn't know? Do you really think that, okay, you know, for instance, the Koch brothers, right, with all the access to information that they have, uh, or you really think Paul Singer... 
on election night were watching their TV with bated breath, hoping like hope that their horse Mitt Romney would win? Or do you think they knew they were throwing their money away when they wrote the check? And if that's the case, why do you think they wrote the checks? Part of it is the hedge fund manager philosophy, is it not? You never know. Be nice to own somebody if they're going to be president or senator or congressman, etc. But the other side of it is the money buys a lot of things and buys a lot of influence, whether the person that's running wins or not. The biggest thing it buys is a deeply divided dichotomy. That's the biggest thing it buys. All these people writing all these checks for all these political ads, it's not really just about getting their side elected. It's about making sure the division between the two sides of the dichotomy is very, very clear. You don't care what side of the dichotomy a person chooses. You just care that they choose a side. Once they choose a side controlling them, well, it gets rather easy rather fast. I'm just saying. Let's look at one more before we wrap up today. I want to finish up with some great news, really great news. I think this is one of the, the best pieces of news we could ever get, um, except some of you won't like it. Maybe 50% of you won't like it. The other 50% might be really happy. Um, I think it all depends on how you plan on living the uh, the next roughly 10 years of your life and what you plan on doing to develop yourself as someone with real value to real people in the world. Um, this is on Business Standard, and it's a new report out. 50% of all occupations today will no longer exist in 2525 report. Before I read this again, I'd like to reiterate what I told you months ago about this fast food workers demonstration, that it was all bullshit. It was all pantomime crap. It was also that in the coming wave of technological evolutions, both sides would have a villain. That the left would have a villain in the evil rich people that don't want to pay people what they're worth. And the right would have a villain in the lazy-ass fast food workers who demanded $15 an hour and forced their hand and made them do all this. Now, if this is all coming, and it's coming at breakneck speed every week, Somebody's going into additional automation procedures and practices. Somebody's eliminating jobs with this. And it's going to keep coming, and it's going to keep coming, and it's going to keep coming. And now we have a credible report out saying 50% of all uh, occupations won't exist. Do you think it really just started a few months ago when some people went out and bitched because they were only being paid $8 an hour to make a hamburger? Do you really? And here's the problem with it. It sounds ridiculous when I put it that way. I'm telling you, watch Facebook over the next two years. Every time this happens, they demanded $15 an hour. Memes will go everywhere. And memes will go the other way. In Sweden, people are paid blah, blah, to do blah, blah. Well, you know what? They're not going to be paid there either. This is the future. This is what's coming. And I'll tell you why it's good news here in a minute. And it's probably not why you think it is. Workspaces with rows of desks will become completely redundant, not because they are not fit for purpose, but simply because that purpose no longer exists, the report predicts. A paradigm shift is expected to be witnessed in the way that workplaces operate over the next 15 years, making nearly 50% of all occupations existing today totally redundant by 2025, a report has said. Artificial intelligence will transform businesses and the work that people do. Process work, customer work, and vast swaths of middle management will simply disappear, it said. The report titled Fast Forward 2030, The Future Work and Workplace, has been presented by a realty consulting firm CBRE and China-based Genesis, a property developer. After interviewing 220 experts, 
business leaders, and young people from Asia, Europe, and North America. Near, quote, nearly 50% of occupations today will no longer exist in 2025. New jobs will require creative intelligence, social and emotional intelligence, and the ability to lever, leverage artificial intelligence. These jobs will be immensely more fulfilling than today's jobs, the report says. <laughs> okay. Workplaces with rows of desks will become completely redundant, not because they are not fit for a purpose, but simply because the purpose no longer exists. Quote, in the next 15 years, we will see a revolution in how we work, and a corresponding revolution will necessarily take place on how we plan to think about workplaces. Quote, the dramatic changes in how people work that we have seen in the past two decades will continue to evolve over the next 15 years, opening up new opportunities for companies to create value and enhance employee performance through innovative workplace strategies and designs, end quote. CBRE South Asia Chairman and Managing Director Ashnun Magazine said, he said many of these opportunities have in fact already arrived, and by seizing them early, smart companies can gain a competitive advantage. By 2030, a majority of real estate transactions may be made online, and most of them will be made using real-time marketplaces, the report noted. Quote, real estate traditionally changes slowly, but these new emerging aggregators could revolutionize the market, allowing tenants and many type of building owners and cities to, con uh, to contribute wasted and unused space back into the ecosystem of available space, magazine said. Given the dramatic, uh, coming dramatic changes, companies will need to relearn how to obtain high performance from employees and contractors, CBRE Asia-Pacific Director and Workplace Strategy Peter Andrew opined. Um, I'll tell you why I think it's good news. If you're going to get rid of 50% of all occupations, we're going to have a textbook case for getting rid of 50% of government with the concept of virtual nations and virtual tribes and virtual communities and virtual services. If, if we can start demonstrating a lot of things that we thought we needed, we don't need, it's only a matter of time before people begin to look around and go, what else don't we need? What else don't we need? That's where we're headed. We're headed to a world where people start asking what we don't need. And when we start asking what we don't need, we start actually evaluating what we really do need and what we really do need uh, from society and from community. I think that we're at the precipice of going forward into kind of that brave new world that's been talked about in many different science fiction uh, stories and things like that. Um, it won't be the way that any of those stories have ever been written, though. If you think about it, many of the things that were, let's say, prophesized by uh, early science fiction writers have come to be. I can't remember the guy's name, but there was a guy back in the 1800s that was a sci-fi writer Um, it might have been the dude that wrote, wrote War of the Worlds and ended up as a, a, a radio stunt in the 30s. Uh, but whoever it was had successfully predicted satellites, these things that would orbit planet Earth and bounce signals. Um, and But the only thing was he thought they would be made out of bricks. You know, you have a brick satellite. I don't know why, but I don't remember where I heard that, but I do know that. I know that if you look at Star Trek, Gene Roddenberry's work. If you look at something like um, the communicators that they use, a the little flip open communicators, it it really looks a lot like a, a cellular phone, especially a, a 90s cell phone, doesn't it? And actually, isn't it strange that our smartphones today uh, do more than the communication devices that were on Star Trek? I think about it. Like, so. Uh, they would have to make a communication to each other, and maybe somebody's around, so they talk real quiet on it. Uh, Spock, do you hear me? And this is Kirk, and he's hiding behind the thing. Don't want anybody to hear him. Where it, you know, in our modern age, you just send a text message. They, their communicators didn't even have text messaging. Have you ever thought of that irony? That the, the Star Trek communicators don't allow text messaging. 
And if you look at all the stuff the Tricorder does on Star Trek, like scans and stuff like that, isn't that where cell phones, I mean smartphones are evolving towards? So they had two devices, and, and so the, 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 even though we're not traveling around with dilithium crystals at warp speed, the technology prophesied actually has already been exceeded. Well, no, they communicated from a ship down to the planet. Yeah, we have satellite communications now. There's people who get Internet bounced off a satellite now. We can do that. Your phone doesn't do that because it's not, it's not essential. It's not necessary. It's not needed. Trust me, if there were enough people in outer space and low-Earth orbit, the way this, these ships were in Star Trek around the planet when Kurt was having, uh, having relations with a green chick, right, uh, and you needed to talk to Spock on the Enterprise or whatever, Uh, or Scotty or what have you, if that was there, we can do that right now. The, the technology of the Star Trek communicator from the 1960s Star Trek original series has been exceeded by the iPhone many times over. The iPhone has apps that will monitor your health, and, and the iPhone has text messaging, which Spock and Kirk couldn't figure out, apparently. So we're seeing this evolution. It just looks different than, than the the writers of old prophesied, but actually in some ways, yeah, we're still way behind because it doesn't make a great story to talk about somebody ordering Taco Bell from their car. You know, you want aliens or contacting other civilizations, but the actual technologies, other than the interstellar flight capabilities, right, are actually exceeding what has been prophesied. It's very exciting. It's very exciting. And it makes me wonder what these next generations will see that we won't be around long enough to see because of our mortal shells. And, you know, there is the concept of the fourth turning. And if that's the case, these young kids now that we've all sold out, so to speak, because we said they're lazy, they're this and that, they're going to be the next great generation. Do you know that? Just based on history, that, that it, it's us. Right, it's 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 the Xers and the tweeners and the boomers that are the kind of that generation that just let it all go, and, and they're the crisis generation has to rise in the crisis and take what they have and build something with it. But I think that this can lead to less government in the long term. I think in the short term it leads to more government and more oppressive government. And it's why we have to fight the evolution of government using technology to control people everywhere we can. It's much more dangerous than who's president. Right, the fact that the government's building dossiers on every American citizen that can be later used to manipulate or control them—that's uh, that's a problem. Like people do have a right to privacy, but your privacy is no longer considered a right in the name of security. Well, it's not security; it's control. So we 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 have this real danger there. But if we can take. You know, and think about, I, I didn't read the report, but I can tell you what they're talking about. It might have gone over some of you. Real estate, I'm going to read the quote again. Real estate uh, traditionally changes slowly, but these new emerging aggregators could revolutionize the market, allowing tenants and many types of building owners and cities to contribute wasted and unused space back into the ecosystem available space. What that means is that it may become the case that people would find usable space as soon as it becomes available. And for a time and have it scheduled when they would leave. And you think, well, why, why would you want to do that? Well, if you get into a highly mobile society, it's more uh, advantageous to be able to, to do these things, to stack functionality in buildings. Um, how many buildings out there could be repurposed to do other things, especially when 50% of all occupations are going to go away? How many buildings are going to go empty? This is why this company's smart. 
they're, they're already thinking ahead. What do we do with all these empty buildings? Oh, Jack, come on. Everybody always said that. Yeah, and little bits of it have always happened. If I get rid, if I'm a, a company, we'll call it Jack Co. so nobody accuses me of any kind of weird manipulation of anything here. Jack Co. Jack Co. is a big company. I employ uh, about 5,000 people nationwide. And my headquarters building, where all my legal work, my CFO is, my CEO, my my inside salespeople, my customer service representatives, the support staff to all the people that are out in the field doing whatever Jacko does. I don't know, uh, spreading punch-in-the-face technology. So when somebody's stupid, somebody shows up and punches them in the face. That's my business. So the only people that are out in the field are the face punchers. Right, so we have to support the face punchers with all of our marketing, all of our sales, all of that stuff, all of our technical service. Here's how to get your punch in the face sent to the right person. Uh, here's what to do if your punch in the face didn't work right, whatever it is. And they're all back there. And I have to support those 4,000 people in the field, a thousand people in my office. If I can eliminate that building as an expense, and I could take those thousand people and cut them down to 200 people and send them all home. Right? Oh, the reports at half the job, so at least 500. But see, the people out there in the field punching people in the face, they're part of the job force too. So we'll, we'll leave them go for now. But I could make the punch in the face robot, right? That just goes to where you want it, punches the guy in the face. We could even have a very precise uh, measurement exactly how hard the person needs to be punched in the face. That measurement's down to a fraction of a percent of force so that we could get the proper punch to the proper face. You think I'm kidding? I am kidding, but I'm kidding to entertain you. But this actually would be a valid product. I bet you can think of somebody that could use a punch in the face. Maybe that cop, we could send him one if, if the punch in the face system with the robots existed. But So I can eliminate my entire workforce in the field. I can have you know punch in the face robots. They show up on time. They punch at the right force. They never make a mistake using facial recognition technology. They work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I don't have to pay them health care. So I have to have a small... Uh, technical workforce to repair my punch-in-the-face robots, and I could have a punch-in-the-face robot uh, a retrieval unit that goes out and brings the robots in when they break down. It could be it can be a, a, a flying drone that does this, and it goes and brings them in. So I can cut my workforce down from uh, 5,000 people down to uh, 200 people that do all of the other things that do need to be done to make sure the company's marketed effectively and that the drones are taken care of and everything else. So Uh, I cut that down. Why would I keep a building? You know, I had this building with a thousand people in it. It was multi-floors. I had to put computers in all the time. I had cubicles. I had all this stuff so I could run my punch-in-the-face workforce. And, you know, my punch-in-the-face guy called in and bitched, and I had somebody, I had to have HR to talk to him. Well, he's a robot now. He doesn't call in, so I have a much smaller HR department. And my HR person, instead of my HR department, can work from her house. She doesn't have to arrive to work anymore. She enjoys her job more. She likes it more. She has more time to, uh, to, to, to take care of things at home. Well, what if she doesn't do a good job because she's not supervised? Well, I fire her. See, I have lots of people to hire now. So I've gotten rid of so many people, that, and so many other people have done this, that uh, the people that actually get jobs, they're going to be really good at them, or they're going to get fired because I can always go out and get more from the talent pool. See? Yeah, and I'm being completely ridiculous with the punch in the face, but that's because the product doesn't matter. This works in any industry. Now, if we can do all that, can we not say, well, wait a minute. Do I need the laborious court system when I enter in a contract with somebody to have that contract mediated and enforced? 
should we come to a point of disagreement in the contract? Wouldn't it be better for both of us if it cost us less and it was more likely that the, 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 the person who was right versus the person with the most money would win in a conflict? So why can't we then take our contract mediation completely private? Well, somebody has to do that. Why not a virtual nation? Why not a virtual nation that we can move our business activities into? Since I've gone to robots and a small headcount of people to run my punch-in-the-face business, why wouldn't I take all of the aspects of that business into a virtual nation? Why wouldn't I get as much of I can of I, as that I can of the operations and assets of my business out of a public sector where all these people who are losing jobs are going to blame innovative people like me for the fact that they don't have a job doing something that doesn't need doing anymore. It's my fault. It's my fault that they don't have a job and they want my stuff. Why wouldn't I take as much as I can out in any way that I can through any innovative technology that I can? Why wouldn't I completely create a new economy for myself to operate in where the only way that you would get any advantage by taking stuff from my economy would be to come into my economy where your rules don't apply anymore. See, when we think, well, you can't do that, and if you can't actually physically go to this place, how does it work? And we're just stifling things. When people watched Captain Kirk open up his little flip device and go, hi, Spock, this is Kirk, they went, wow. Today you're like, that stupid thing doesn't even do text messaging. It doesn't even have a screen. You can't even look at pictures on it, for God's sakes. Yeah, but it's not a camera either. It doesn't take pictures. And when he wants to, to like, get his heart rate, he has to get a tricorder. My phone has an app. I take my heart rate on my phone. You can't even find a place to eat with that stupid thing. Right? People are like, wow, I don't know if that will ever happen. That's where we're at right now. We're in a place where the newest evolutions will take place inside virtual spaces all it does it does it dawn on anybody that all of these all of these things are a result of computer power very little in the physical sense of things it's about thinking machines and most of the thinking machines don't have arms they aren't robots it comes back to moore's law Back in 1975, uh, a cat named Moore, Gordon Moore, uh, said that if we just looked at where we were going, that we would see computer powering, uh, computer power doubling. And there's some debate on exactly what the number was, but the agreed upon number is 18 months, and that uh, we would see computer speeds. Uh, and, and transistor counts and, and mac microprocessor transistor counts double every 18 months. And it's, it's pretty much done that. If you look at a graph of it, it's almost a perfect line. And there's, you know, people saying, well, it'll continue to 2015 or 2016. It's just conjecture. But so far it's worked. And when we say that it won't continue, I think the only way that it won't continue really will be due to the fact that we may reach a point where it's not even practical anymore. Like, we have to figure out how to harness the power of what we're doing. And the reality of that is that, you know, when you when you have the infrastructure, uh, the products that use the infrastructure eventually come. And and we're seeing now in the, you know, these, these last few years of the cycle, this exponential growth rate has produced capabilities that are actually beyond what we can do with them yet. And we're starting to figure out what to do with them. And I, I think that things like the Internet and Google 
and Facebook and all these other things will one day be looked at as just like really primitive technologies, like like Stone Age technology. I mean, make no mistake about it. When first primitive man figured out how to flint nap and make a spear point, the people around them looked at it and wow. And while it was something anybody could do eventually, it was something that only really gifted people could do well. And there were people that could do it better than anybody else. And spear points and knives and stone blades became not just tools that were used, they actually became currencies. They were bartered. I could barter with you, and if you had a sack of meat, right, and I had a whole bunch of grain that I had picked, and you didn't want it, you didn't really want the grain, and uh, but you, but I, I showed you a nice stone knife. Even if you didn't want that, you knew that stone knife would never go bad, and somebody else somewhere would want it. And they became currencies. They were that valuable, and the people that were really good at it were considered very special people within their groups. And I'm sure somebody looked at that and said, there's no way that'll ever be any better. And, of course, there's so many technologies that have surpassed stone blades that it, 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 we look at it now and think it's completely primitive. It's something that bushcrafters do. You know you learn how to do some flint napping or something and make your own knife or blade. And, and you realize that it's just a, a skill that you're preserving. It's something you have and an artist uh, thing as well. And it's cool. And it's, but you, you know that you know something as primitive as a, as a broadhead made of steel uh, from the Bear Archery Corporation in the 1960s is superior in every way as a projectile point for shooting a deer. But yet it's still cool. And it must be old, ancient technology. Don't think they won't look back and look at their smartphones and go, those things didn't do anything. They'll look at it the same way we looked at Captain Kurt's Tricarter now. you, you got to use a different device to get a pulse? Are you kidding me? You, you have that thing on the iPhone now that you can put your thumbprint on it and you can open your phone with it. That thing with an app will freaking tell you you know, your, your, your health. Why didn't they have that? That's how they're going to look at a lot of things we have now. So why not? Why in the world would human beings who end up with all this time and all this technology not start developing ways to create voluntary interactions with each other, voluntary agreements, voluntary forms of law enforcement, voluntary forms of education? Have you realized that everything government does is compulsory? There's almost nothing government does that's voluntary. And think about that. Every child deserves an education. Okay, great, fine. You, even if you, you, you're for government education, great. Create government education. Go ahead and do it. Oh, we got to make it compulsory. We've got to make everybody go, and we got to make people that are opposed to it pay for it. That's the only way it works. Really? You can't figure out how to, how to give every child the opportunity for education without stealing from people and without forcing everybody to go to the same system. Well, you can go to private school, yeah, and all the private schools are legislated by the government to do what government says they're supposed to do. Homeschoolers had to fight tooth and nail to get everything that they've gotten. So everything the government does is compulsory. As we develop technologies that are portable and infinitely replicatable and infinitely continue to decrease in the cost of implementation, why would human beings fail to use that opportunity to develop their own voluntary systems? Of course they will. It's not going to be utopia. It's not going to happen overnight. And there's going to be a lot of turmoil and pain. And I'll tell you who's going to take it the worst. Those of you right now who are 30 years old-ish, somewhere in that range, you're going to be young enough to still need to work as all of this is going on. 
and just old enough to not be caught up with a lot of what's going on. I mean, you guys in your 30s, your early 30s especially, your late 20s, don't think of yourself as young in this. Think of yourself as old in this. Because there's kids, they're going to start kindergarten in three or four years, that are going to learn to use these technologies while they're going to school, and you're going to be trying to catch up from the outside. The 1990s as a salesperson, I had to teach myself PowerPoint while my son was using it for reports in school. Think about that. PowerPoint is really a kid's toy, though. Some of this stuff that's coming, pretty amazing. And those that are the most ingenious with the usage of these tools will benefit the most from them. I think there's going to be a lot of cool things coming. Hey, you know what? They told us that only government could create, print, and manage a monetary supply. And then Bitcoin came along. And you know what? They were wrong. That if people understand how something works, if they understand how it holds value, and if an economy is built around it, you can create money from ones and zeros in a computer. <gasps> no way. Well, that's what the government's been doing since they figured out how to use a computer to create money. So if they can do it, why can't we do it? If we can take back the ability to create our own money, we take back control of our society. Bitcoin is just one thing like that. It's just the beginning. And they're going to try to co-opt it now. They're going to try to take control of it. They're going to try to say that it, they're going to actually legitimize Bitcoin to the point where anything like Bitcoin must not be legitimate. That's the next phase because they don't know how to control it. So they have to try to co-opt it. That's what people in power do. They try to suppress, and when suppression fails, they use co-op. So they take it and they make it their own. So what they did with your Tea Party. Tea Party was supposed to stand for smaller government and lower taxes. That was everything that it was based on. It took about 15 seconds for the Republican Party to co-opt it and turn it into all things Republican, which was never what it was supposed to be. It just continues. It always continues. But the problem with technology and what makes technology different, especially technology that gets down to the level that the individual can use it and develop it themselves and implement it themselves and tie it together with their own creativity, when it's replicatable, it ends up in way too many hands for it to be controlled or co-opted. And people rise up to challenges that are in front of them. They use technology to create ideas. And I'll tell you where I think the greatest advancements uh, for opportunity are going to come in the future. In the technological space and in the artisan, individual, community level space. At the same time that the few agricultural jobs that are left in large agriculture are being taken away by combines that drive themselves. Well, you'll have the rise of opportunities with people growing little farms, little spin farms right in neighborhoods where people will be willing to pay a premium for food grown in their own backyard or on the fence on the other side of their backyard. That's where the opportunities will lie. In the things that people can really do better than machines ever will. I don't care how well you take a machine and have it make a knife. It will never make a knife the way that a true artisan can make that knife with the care and the craft and each one being a little different and that being part of what you want. And at the highly technical stuff, those are where the two opportunities are going to lie. Bringing value to people, learning how to communicate with people, whether it be through electronic communications or whether it be through face-to-face -face community level communications, that's where the opportunities will be. And unfortunately, If 50% of all occupations are going to be eliminated, and it, let's say it's high, 
let's say it's pie in the sky that are trying to promote whatever they're doing. What if it's 20? 20% of all jobs just don't exist anymore. That's a lot of jobs that need to be created to counterbalance them with a growing population and with an aging population where the, those are that are in the aged markets, right? The seniors are starting to outnumber those who are supporting them with programs like Social Security because the government screwed that up too. Oh, gee. Yeah, they can screw up anything. And for every pain, there is an opportunity. For every problem, there is a solution. It's up to you to find those solutions, implement them in your own lives, and figure out how to turn them into opportunities for yourself, for your community, and for others. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, and we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Yeah.